Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we bring on Charles and Paul from Element Finance. Element Finance is creating fixed and variable yield markets for users. The core concept is if you're a DeFi user or crypto user more broadly with a yield generating position on something like Yearn or ETH2, you can separate it into two separate tokens, the principal and the yield token. This is a super neat use case, which I think will unlock a lot of new possibilities. And honestly, we could dedicate an entire podcast to the specific design and second order effects of the core product. But the Element team has spent a lot of time specifically focusing and thinking about governance. The team has a deep background in designing and implementing governance systems, and they've really put a lot of thought into how to design a robust, useful system from first principles. And since they've started releasing the blog posts about the governance system a few months ago, I've been yeah just actively following it and reading about it and super pumped to be able to chat with the creators of that system, Charles and Paul. So welcome. Thanks, Derek. It's great to be here. So I guess to kick things off, how did you guys approach the governance design process from first principles? Yeah, I can kick this one off. So, I mean, there's a lot of lessons that I've learned in the past from working with MakerDAO and governance, as well as a few other projects. But at a high level, we really wanted to build a system that was flexible, modular, adaptable, and really just something that can continuously adapt because no governance system is perfect, much like history has shown us with governance systems. Things fail all the time, and it's about kind of picking the pieces up and moving on and seeing what works for the current moment. So with that being said, I mean, with constantly evolving protocols, there has to be room for improvement. So Paul and I really thought it was important to design and build this modular system. Also, of course, like governance systems shouldn't be built on the expectation that everyone wants to vote. I think that's way too idealistic. Basically, everyone today doesn't vote in their everyday elections. So I think building a system on that assumption will just kind of lead to failure. So you really need to kind of focus on what can allow people to participate without having to, such as means of like delegation, and just to mitigate things like voter fatigue and voter apathy, because that can lead to pretty bad decisions. Another big point would probably be just like, not every decision in a DAO needs to be or have the security of a protocol upgrade. So having things that are a lot easier to push forward, such as like treasury management, like spending or one-off grants and smaller things like that, or even collateral onboarding. Those can be a lot easier and straightforward because you don't want every decision to kind of bog down the efficiency of the DAO. And lastly, I think the thing that we really learned from both our experiences is that scaling governance is not necessarily about getting more participation and more direct democratic control, but about scaling the number of decisions that can occur per period of time, given that the decisions are in general representative of the community. On the technical side, I'll definitely pass it off to Paul, though. Like Charles was saying, I think the smart contracts reflect the modularity of the system in general. They are designed in such a way as to allow upgradability, which I think is an interesting choice philosophically, because I know that a lot of people in the blockchain industry have a lot of takes on upgradability. But I think like all things, what's important here is moderation of the way that you apply upgradability. Because upgradability itself isn't necessarily a problem if it's like constrained by the right set of checks and balances and focused in the right areas, it can be really useful. But if you, for example, have like a multi-sig that controls upgradability for the protocol, you have a like 
very strong potential for rugs. And so from a technical side, we've designed the protocol to have sort of like flexible upgradability where the smart contracts, they link together in a modular system, which allows upgradability of immutable contracts. And also we have some proxy architecture upgrades, which are more pure upgradability. And so this like modular upgradability, which is a concatenation, a mixture of both upgradable and non-upgradable components, allows the system to have both the best of fully upgradable systems and some of the guarantees of non-upgradable systems built together. In addition to that, I think our goal for smart contract engineering is always to keep things simple and secure as is possible with like an appropriate layer and level of abstraction for each of the components to ensure that we can fit a large number of use cases under a single protocol. I think if I were to summarize what I heard, it would be the general philosophy is balancing the existing governance approaches of pure direct democracy with allowing a certain set of users to make decisions in a more scalable and efficient manner, but still keeping in mind checks and balances to ensure that changes and upgrades are not sort of done in a haphazard manner and sort of splitting all of that up into like three or four key elements that other people can pick and choose how to work with. I mean, in general, with the council protocol, the governance protocol itself, it is a modular system. So I'm sure we'll get into the components of it later. But I mean, with the governance steering council, the voting vaults, the optimistic rewards and spending, flexible spending, different governance protocols out there can't really offer those in modularity. Whereas like if you are a brand new DAO that needs some sort of tool to extend voting functionality, you could just take the voting vaults from the council protocol. You don't need to take the whole framework. But yeah, I think you pretty much got the point from both what we were saying. Totally makes sense. I guess, yeah, it makes sense to dive into councils first. I think we've seen a few different approaches to this idea. Like Synthetics has a Spartan council. I believe Yearn has a council of sorts. And we've obviously seen a lot of different protocols have multi-sigs that have a certain level of control over funds or other decisions. The element council model is pretty different from all of these. Charles, do you want to give a high-level summary of how it works? It's one of the most exciting components of the council protocol. And I think the best way to describe it is that it's essentially a group of representatives elected through delegation from the community, and it's all done on a rolling basis. So if you're a person who's getting delegated to and you pass a certain defined threshold, which is defined by governance and can be changed, of course, you're on the GSC. And that allows you to have certain authorities over your role. Of course, I would suggest that down in the future to definitely compensate these people because without compensation, it's hard for them to want to stick around. And we've seen a lot of problems with that in a lot of the most recent DAOs forming. But essentially, the authority comes with the role, and that is being able to spend portions of the treasury without kind of that regular burden of going through the entire governance process They can put proposals directly on chain as opposed to go through like proposal snapshot on chain. They can go from proposal directly to on chain. So it's a little more efficient. And I think the last part is that they can have some authority over the governance process and how it's coordinated and supported in the future. I imagine there'd probably be some sort of DAO team that would manage that. 
but that's in general kind of what the GSC does. In terms of how it differs from synthetics, for example, is basically just breaks down to the delegation threshold election style versus a real election style. I think the election style really makes a lot of sense for DAO teams or service providers of the DAO in which they kind of serve for terms and they do their work. And if they do a good job, they get re-elected kind of thing. But for an actual council managing the overall vision and day-to-day ops and coordination of the DAO, I think it's better to have them on a rolling basis because if you elect a group of people for, let's say, six months and one of them's acting maliciously, you have to have a process in place to offboard them. And that can be quite burdensome. And that involves people needing to vote on that as well. Whereas if you do it on a rolling basis per delegation, they can essentially just fall off whenever if they do something malicious. And if they don't really act transparently along their decisions and what they're doing for council or whatever DAO they're governing, it kind of shows that they're somewhat disconnected with the community. And then therefore their governance delegated votes will fall off and then they'll kind of drop off. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting that like if someone were to hear that description, they might initially think it's pretty similar to your sort of more traditional corporate sort of governance and board of directors. But as you said, there are some pretty big differences in how the composition is decided. For one, it sounds like there isn't necessarily a fixed size on the council itself. It just depends completely on how many token holders end up delegating, though there is like a sort of final maximum like the outstanding supply of tokens, but more importantly, like in a traditional board of directors, shareholders can have input and elect them, but it's sort of on specific fixed terms. As you said, every six months to a year for this, it's sort of very flexible. It could change if there are specific decisions that are controversial, like that, that the council sort of membership could change basically. Yeah, exactly. I think that was actually one of the main motivations of this whole style of governance in DeFi or decentralized governance is like emulating the good things from traditional corporate board of directors style governance because it's been battle tested for generations and it works pretty well. And then also taking the great things from decentralized governance and the things that make things more efficient, such as like delegation. So, I mean, in a way, the GSC model is somewhat similar to a board of directors. If you want to make an analogy there, but the GCA model will have incentive principles, but no authority like with the role that they can just make these decisions. It is ultimately up to the community and there is a period for them to kind of veto things or come in and vote. The analogy doesn't really work directly, but it is a similarity. Actually, there is one thing that I wanted to pass off to Paul is how essentially the GSC can be cyber resistant. What I wanted to add to this is that a lot of the time DAOs, there's this criticism of them that they're rediscovering the infrastructure of previous organizations or reinventing it, and therefore they're sort of not different. But I think this misses one of the things that's critical about technological innovation in today's society, which is that the increased communication throughput of today's technology means that a lot of the systems that were built in the past They're intrinsically inefficient because of the amount of communication infrastructure that existed. And I think the board of directors is a good example of this because the amount that stakeholders can express 
their preferences to the board is sort of intrinsically limited in the corporate model by the assumptions about the way that information can travel from shareholders to the board of directors. Limited term elections that happen only every once in a while have this assumption that everyone has to get together in a big room and they have to like yell at each other. This is like no longer true in the present. And that's one of the reasons that even though you see corporate structure-like things forming in DAOs, the room for improvement is the way that new information infrastructure and coordination techniques allow these to be fundamentally different than they were before. So for example, we have like continuous delegation in our system. So shareholders leverage the new communication infrastructure, both in the forums and the coordination infrastructure of continuous voting to have a much higher communication throughput and like preferential expression over what the board of directors does, which allows it to be less limited in its expression of goals than a corporate form, in my opinion. Super interesting. So if I were to try and summarize that point specifically, it's sort of because everything happens directly, like all the votes happen on chain, anyone has the ability to delegate or undelegate at any given moment. The potential candidate pool for council members is bigger. The types of decisions that people are aware of publicly about is much bigger as well. And if the average token holder wants, they can freely have views and input into that. Even if they're not voting directly, they can make a direct impact via delegation, much more so compared to, again, traditional corporate board models, where it's like those meetings might not even take place publicly. And it's sort of not super clear what's happened until after the fact. And moreover, you can have sort of a different set of priorities. Like you've seen this in some of the corporate board models where like ESG groups have activist investing groups have been pushing for corporate boards to prioritize investment into renewable energy, for example. But if you look at the sort of like way that this works for traditional corporate governance, it's heavily reliant on these election models that take a very long time and they rely on buy-in from really large traditional hedge funds. And all of these things sort of limit the corporation to be very focused on profit because it's sort of the lowest common denominator of the incentives that are given to like executive leadership of the organization. And the difference with DAOs, in my opinion, is not necessarily that they're going to be like all anti-profit. I don't think that's realistic, but that the continuous feedback process and the fact that average holders have individual voting power and the ability to communicate much more quickly and frequently with their representatives means that objectives that are not purely about the profitability of the overall organization can be communicated more directly, quickly, and the system can have more overall responsiveness to those things that the actual user pool and the stakeholders would find useful. If I were to make this conversation more specific about the implementation of the council model, who do you guys see as being the ideal or archetype members of this council? There might be several. Who do you envision people delegating to? What kinds of participants? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's easy to speculate on, but it's hard to actually predict what's going to happen when it actually goes live. But I think the main kind of people you'd look for are other delegates of big protocols, such as Maker and Compound. But the way I kind of see it is that 
the GSC in a way like has the ability to spend part of the treasury to, or even signal that they'd like a DAO team to be onboarded. So much like a board of directors, they'll be incentivized to actually onboard people to the DAO who can add value and inform them and help them make better decisions. Like for example, let's say I'm a GSC member and I'm strong with how governance works in treasury management, but I'm not really sure about historical data on like the protocol or if we should tweak these parameters or those parameters. So if I were to make a proposal to onboard a data team or a data science team, I think that they could pull some really great data to help better inform my decisions and keep me up in the GC position and have people keep voting like for me and delegating for me. But people like could be generally like protocol politicians, like the famous Monet Supply, who's very great at risk analysis of DeFi and different areas there and is more broad. But it could also be very specific people such as like core developers or even just people who are on the marketing side and want to push forward new initiatives on reaching new users for Element DAO and whatnot. So I think in general, we'll see a huge variety of different people. And over time, we'll generally see the right people get filtered in and out. But that's all I can really say at this point. I almost think of the GSC model as a lightweight version of the MakerDAO core unit or working group model where you can have, maybe it starts off a little bit more general, but the idea, as you just said, is to have these sector-specific people with different kinds of expertise that can all contribute to decision-making. And maybe it sounds like over time that might self-evolve into more formalized subgroups within the GSC, but sort of early on, like the idea is to have a few different of these skill sets on it itself. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a possibility. I mean, the GSC council could be a similar model for, let's say, like a protocol steering council or a treasury management steering council, and they could be elected on a rolling basis. However, for teams that are actually providing like long-term services for a DAO, I do think the election style model could be better because if they were to just be off-boarded like mid milestone reaching work, then it's not great. So if they did have terms of, let's say like six months, quarterly, what have you, they could perform and reach these goals. And then by the end of that term, if their work isn't good, they could be off-boarded. But if it is, they could be reelected. We'll have to see which method works the best for that, but it could definitely like be used for that purpose. Exactly. Totally makes sense. Yeah. If you have like a function specific working group and they're working on a project that takes six to 12 months, it would really suck if for whatever reason, people undelegated to them before they could actually at least even deliver a product that people can evaluate. One thing you touched on as well is governance incentives. Curious how you think about that. I can definitely speak to some governance incentives and what I think should be done and what I've observed in the past around kind of previous governance models. And that's basically, I think that the industry does need to push more experiments forward here with incentives on governance. Like every protocol in the past year has only really pushed forward things like liquidity mining and and protocol incentives. And they've generally neglected governance, which is ultimately the thing that runs the DAO successfully into the future. It's more about the long-term incentives versus short-term user acquisition, in my opinion, or at least that's the result of DeFi Summer and how they treated those types of incentive programs. But voting vaults are in a way 
a way to incentivize governance participants because of capital efficiency of voting. So governance incentives don't necessarily need to be that high or similar to liquidity money, but by providing the flexibility and kind of the hands-off approach of governance delegation in a way that does kind of already give them some incentive. The other areas that I think could be explored for in terms of governance incentives are delegation or just voting, like small things like that. So with the GSC, it could make a lot of sense to try this out where like I get 90% of the rewards. If I delegate to you, you get 10. It really encourages you to go and get as many people to delegate you as possible. And that does kind of show how many people trust you and they trust your vote and all of that. So I think that experiment could be cool. Another area would be governance work in general. So if you propose a successful proposal, there could be some sort of form of rewards. I think you can think about DX down the holographic consensus model where it's like staking. And if things are pushed forward, you kind of earn the incentives there. It's also similar to the Cosmos approach for validating where like if only five people out of 10 validate, they fill it up and they give the rewards to the people that did that. So it incentivizes them, the people who are actually participating to stick around. But yeah, I think in general, it's just something that we all need to work together on and push more experiments forward here because ultimately our DAOs need to stay alive and it's not just about the short-term acquisition of users. That last part is an eloquent way of putting it. I think protocols and DAOs are starting to realize that having a focus on incentivizing long-term aligned users usually involves having them involved in governance. And there's a bunch of different potential approaches and super excited to see the different attempts over the coming year. And curious how you guys think about the element core team's role in this process. Because from the outside and from reading about the GSC, it feels like initially the scope isn't necessarily super broad. They do have control over some of the governance process. They have some ability to use small amounts of treasury spend and they can make proposals. But it seems like initially the product itself, that is mostly being done by the core team initially. I think the way that the Element core team likes to see ourselves is as a research and development group. And so we don't necessarily think of ourselves as developing purely for Element, but what we do develop for Element is mostly about research on the direction of the protocol and potential upgrades, because it is functional in its current state. Our current V1 smart contracts, they live on mainnet forever and They're reasonably effective at what they do with maybe some potential pain points. And the markets, they largely work as well. We've seen a fairly large amount of volume. We've seen people doing sort of all sorts of the market that we researched and predicted would be there. And so I think where the Element core team comes into play now is in response to demands from the community for more research and development and to sort of iterate on potential future directions because we really can't change the V1. It exists forever on Ethereum and governance won't actually have any power over it. We don't have any power over it. And so like we will do research and development in response to what the community wants as the protocol develops. But as like a generic research and development group, we don't necessarily take all responsibility for the protocol. 
We will be developing on it in the future in a private capacity, but I think that in some ways the protocol is already complete. It's just what ways can it be improved? That's like our concern. I think a lot like the Maker Foundation's protocol smart contracts teams transition over to MakerDAO and how they were onboarded by the DAO to continue working on the protocol and do research development. It could be a very similar situation where a service provider consisting of part of the core team could be onboarded by the DAO to essentially offer their R&D services to make improvements, fixes, and all of that. So I think it really is just going to be a first period of bootstrapping governance and figuring out the GSC and how all those things work at first. And once the training wheels have kind of fallen off, I think the whole community will start to really seriously think about how DAO teams will be onboarded and how contributors will be incentivized further on. Yeah, I really like that framing of how really the purpose of governance and to have voting at all is for the community to be able to pick and choose which teams are working on it. And right now it might be the element team initially, but in the medium term, like there might be multiple contributors. There might be other teams that emerge from within the community. Like we've seen in MakerDAO, there's real world assets teams, there's Oasis and all these different working groups that have formed. So I think longer term, that is a super interesting model. Yeah. And just to backpack on the MakerDAO comparison, I think with their core unit model, it was really interesting to see that, or it proved that governance was working because as the foundation dissolved, there were a lot of teams that tried to move over to the DAO and provide services such as marketing, communications around governance, protocol, risk, oracles, you name it. And not all of them actually kind of got onboarded. And that shows that the DAO actually made decisions on what was important and what was needed to operate this DAO. So it's nice to see things like that happen. I mean, much like the most recent controversy, in quotes, about the core unit offboarding with Maker, that anyone can propose a core unit to be offboarded. I think that is definitely the topic of conversation. But in many ways, a lot of people from the outside on Twitter and people who don't dig into the forums don't really see the work and efforts that those core units put in. But internally, between all the core units and all the active participants in governance, they really see that these core units aren't actually contributing value. So it does make sense to offboard them. I think in general, the idea that not everyone can be onboarded to a DAO and governance rejecting that is really healthy. And it shows that these things work. I want to toss out like a shout out to Coordinate here because I think they have a really nice way of doing this is like, there's probably a balance between the internal visibility of the work to the team and the external visibility of the work to the, the, the community. Like I think some parts of the team, like design and smart contracts, they're very visible as to why you would want them. And then a lot of other things, like maybe you want to like have some way for the DAO to internally allocate points for like supporting teams, like a legal services team and like human resources and this type of stuff. So that like you can balance between the stuff that's visible as like super necessary and the stuff that's not as visible as super necessary so that the community can have like maximum transparency into what's useful to the contributors in the DAO. Yeah, I think that touches on a pretty big problem in general for DAO contributors, which is oftentimes what 
public stakeholders see as the most valuable contributors are the users that are the most loud and the most active on Twitter or Discord. And not saying those people aren't yeah, necessarily contributing a, a ton of value, but if you're contributing to like a DeFi protocol, for example, you might be really good at building and focusing on your specific niche, and you might not enjoy the public discourse side of things. You might not be very good at, at explaining what you're doing publicly, which is important, but there are many people in the world like that, that would just prefer to stay in their niche and to focus on like the work itself and not necessarily like communicating with thousands or, or tens of thousands of token holders. I couldn't agree more on that. I think MakerDAO, in a way, with their core unit model, has that approach where there's a core unit facilitator. And you can view them as kind of like, if you want to make the analogy of like a political party, not that it's directly analogous, but a political leader is essentially the face of the party. They do all the talking, and that's the core unit facilitator. They're in charge of communicating all the things that are happening within that core unit, whether it's smart contract updates, what they're working on now, what's on the roadmap and all of that, what their budget is et cetera, et cetera. And the rest of the team is there just doing the work. So I think it takes a really unique person to be that like leader. And I mean, in the case of a protocol engineer, if they have the ability to go and speak out all the time about what they're doing and be popular on Twitter and spread their kind of ethos while coordinating a team, that's like the perfect role for someone. And I think a lot of DAOs can learn from that model because most people on these teams can't spend their time on doing that. And you need to have a dedicated role for it. Yeah, I think this is also something the GSC can do. The GSC are almost global advocates for the development teams because they're necessarily public-facing roles because of the delegation. And I'd like to hope that they are advocates for the people doing necessary work inside of the protocol instead of being antagonists to those people. Absolutely. I think that is one of the main value-adds the GSC can offer is to one, like help onboard these people, but also be advocates for them and echo speaker their work and accomplishments as opposed to having them do it. Of course, I think the DAO teams in the future should have monthly office hours or at least reports on what they're doing. I think the GSC is that method of communication to the community because it shows their alignment with them, of course. Right. It's like the GSC can help create and form some of these core units or working groups or pods, whatever you want to call them. But yeah, at the end of the day, like these groups need their own separate structure with its own sort of specialized contributors. Another area of MakerDAO I wanted to ask about is you touched on the sort of role of the facilitator and how they're responsible for the public facing communications about the work that each core unit's doing. But can you speak a bit more about the evaluation process? Like, is it as simple as you post updates on the forums and let token holders vote yes or no on your budget and on the working group's existence? Is there any sort of like peer review or internal review process? Like, I'm assuming there is no, because again, in a traditional company, you have literally a CEO that all of these, if you want to call them VPs or whatever, will report to. but that doesn't exist in MakerDAO. So curious how that evaluation process works. Yeah, so I think initially, I mean, if you want to start a core unit, there's kind of a whole template process where you have to fill out a couple, I think it's three maker improvement proposals. One is the budget, one's the actual like 
how the core units structured. And the other is like their milestones. So once those have all been onboarded, you are essentially working for, let's say like two, three months, you get a budget from the protocol and you allocate it between your core unit based on who's on the team and at what level, much like an organization today. And then once they've got to that budget running out at the end of that time, they resubmit a new proposal for a new budget that could include more people. It could include less. It has new goals to reach and whatnot. And that's all voted on by the maker governance community. I don't think there's any sort of like other core units vetting each other, which could be an interesting way to approach it in the future or at least something to explore. But yeah, that's currently how it works. Yeah, I do think like a core unit focused on internal HR or compensation numbers or some sort of accountability focus could be an interesting experiment. That's definitely needed in this industry. But I think uh, it's also important not to have accountability to the mob of people. I think uh, people have like an opinion on compensation, which is often not necessarily, which is related to their own experience. It's not related to the market. And so like, I think there's a balance between accountability and like mob rule. Mob rule. I agree with that. I've experienced it firsthand on governance forums. But I guess what I'm saying is, I think we're in agreement. Some form of core unit specifically focused on that from people that understand market rates and what is worth paying for. And they can provide recommendations to the community as opposed to only leaving it to like a direct vote. Yeah, that's the advantage. I think something cool, I mean, this is kind of bringing the topic a little over to our voting vaults architecture, but something that could be explored in the future is that for every DAO team that's onboarded, there essentially could have some sort of voting vault, which allows them to have certain voting power and they could have a higher amount of voting power on onboarding new core units and like things like that. That could definitely be something to explore as well. But I don't know if we've covered actually the concept of voting vaults yet, have we? We've touched on it, but I think it'd be helpful for listeners if you could just give an explainer on what voting vaults are, because they're a very interesting primitive. Yeah, absolutely. I'll kick it off. So, I mean, voting vaults are my absolute favorite part about the council governance protocol. And the short answer is they're a way to assign voting power to any position or even any use case. They're modular and upgradable. So let's say the voting power is set by governance at a certain level. Let's say it's like one to one. And in the future, people believe that it should be tweaked up or down. Governance can vote to change that. The real kind of ethos of these things is that it allows you to participate in governance while keeping your capital efficiency. A lot of problems with governance today is like the opportunity cost of locking up your governance tokens in a governance contract where all you can do is vote and you just sit around stewing, waiting for the next vote, and you can't actually capitalize on those things. So with voting vaults, it can allow you to have governance tokens in compound maker or an LP position and still maintain the ability to delegate or vote. And I think that's really important for increasing participation and generally improving voter fatigue and voter apathy. But the biggest part of all that really kind of makes me want to preach voting vaults everywhere I go is that they enable inclusivity. So it has the ability to include any participant in your community in governance, as opposed to just like the one token, one vote, which is largely controlled by people who can get over that capital barrier of like earning the tokens or buying them on the market. So you can have a voting vault that assigns voting power to an identity let's say a GitHub contributor or a forum or Discord contributor, you can assign voting power to them. So 
they can actually participate and equalize with the other people in the protocol governance. But also it really evens out because a lot of the hardest workers in like Maker and other DeFi protocols are the ones who are in the trenches in the forums are the people grinding on the smart contracts and building the front ends that interact with the protocol. And a lot of them don't have a whole lot of voting power. It should matter. And I think having that ability to have more inclusivity is just going to make governance so much healthier and make the political dynamic in general just more aligned with the vision of the DAO. But on the technical sense, I mean, Paul is the architect of these voting vaults. I would love to pass it off to him to share some wisdom. So the voting vaults are on a technical level, they're the result of an abstraction. In current voting, you have a concept of a vote normally attached to a token, and then this vote is like counted in the same place as like voting power is tracked as the votes are handled. But instead of having that, we've abstracted over the concept of a vote. So the vote can be anything that is defined by a smart contract program. And then we have a central vote counting contract, which will like simply whenever someone comes to vote, they indicate the program they use to calculate how much voting power they have. The voting contract checks if it's an approved program, and then it executes it in the voting vault smart contracts. And so this means that the number that's returned, whatever that number is, is the number of votes that the person has. And so this gives you a huge amount of flexibility over the way in which you allocate voting power, because any smart contract that can be defined in a deterministic way on a mainnet Ethereum can be used to give people voting power. And as long as it has the capacity to return some number from the result of the calculation, which opens a huge swath of use cases simply because it's generic enough to allow votes to be defined any number of ways in parallel and have them all run in the same system at the same time. Super helpful explanation. I think hearing you guys explain it is very eye-opening because it sounds like there's really two main parts to the voting vaults. The first major innovation is you can basically set any definition for who can be part of a specific voting vault. And starting off, yeah, it could be people using Compound or using Aave or a person that has enough votes to be on the governance steering committee. But it could also be someone that owns a certain NFT. And again, the parameters that each of these parties have is completely customizable as well. So I think that is a very powerful primitive. What are some of the initial voting vaults that you guys are working on? We have basically one voting vault, which simply finds a numerical number of votes to individual addresses and allows those to be represented as an ERC-20 optionally sort of external from the system. And then we have a second voting vault. That first one is very much, it'll have the same dynamics as like Compound or Aave. The second one is a vesting specific version of that where votes are released over a time period and those votes actually scale up over the time period. So like someone can get allocated a certain amount of voting power, but the allocation means that that voting power will grow over four years and some type of like standardized vesting schedule. So these are the two initial vaults. We also have one which basically can assign voting power to a Merkle tree. And that Merkle tree can sort of have any internal numbers. And so we've had a few discussions of use cases for this. One is 
if the protocol wants to allocate votes to people who are LPs in the future, for example, they can then be added to this Merkle tree and it'll give them temporary non-transferable voting power, for example, that could even technically speaking go down over time. These voting vaults can be extended. The possibilities are endless. And I think some things that I would love to see or possible near-term voting vaults would be like the ones I mentioned before, where you have a compound of a person who's using their tokens as collateral or to earn interest while keeping voting power, the LP vault, which is very similar. But the other cool ones, which I know a lot of people complain about gas fees when voting is an L2, L1 synthesis vault, where essentially the L2 posts the balance tree hashes and L1 votes using the Merkle balance proof of L2. So people don't actually have to kind of sacrifice the gas cost and opportunity cost there as well. But the other two that I really also think of find very interesting is something like a DAO merger vault, where like you give token holders of other protocols the ability to vote. This could be a pretty cool use case for the Ferrari merger, for example, on just how they could deal with like their governance's kind of synthesizing and whatnot. The other one could be pretty cool, would be like an outborough vault where someone deposits something such as like an element principal token or a non-governance token. And the protocol tokens can get more votes than the current balance. But yeah, I mean, back to my favorite one, which I really want to see evolve over time. And I know it's a very challenging problem is just identity verified vaults. And I know there's been a lot of projects like SourceCred and a few others that have worked on identities without sacrificing the need to KYC and all of that, but also just bringing back kind of tasks to the identity, such as like participating in Discord, GitHub, forums, collecting community NFTs, all kind of aggregating back to one identity and creating voting power from that would be absolutely interesting to see evolve. And I think would just make governance overall more fair. As you can tell, I could talk about the different possibilities for a long time, but I think that's the gist. First off, I think super interesting both on the existing voting vaults that Element is implementing, as well as the possibilities, the L2, L1 synthesis vaults and identity-based ones. I mean, I guess the GSC is sort of the first sort of basic version of the identity sort of use case. Identity is, in this case, would be simply defined as crossing a specific threshold of delegated votes. But yeah, you can assign any kind of credentialing or on-chain history where if someone meets them, then they can vote. I guess one question is, and not sure if you have anything to to add on to that, but does it make sense to tie the voting vault concept in with functional working groups? If you have certain qualifications for evaluating risk, then there's like a risk voting vault and they can have more voting power for a specific set of parameters. Like, is that the right way to think about it also? That's possible. Segregating out which individual votes a person has more voting power for is not within the first version of the council system, but I think it's totally plausible that there is a path to doing this with the voting vaults architecture. It's an interesting model. Like weirdly, it has this comparison to like medieval royalty kind of models where like someone gains power because they've been given a formal title, except way more decentralized and accessible because you potentially get hired as like a smart contract engineer. And then like, along with the formal hiring to the DAO, you sort of get these votes. I think that's a really interesting model. And it's potentially something that would have a lot of value because it could focus people's power onto their areas of expertise. I'm just going to go back to 
your comment about the GSC and like voting vault. And I think that we have looked at this and it is how it's structured. And I don't think we got into the details of it, but I mean, like in many governance systems today, like Plutarchy and governance attacks are very possible because of the whole kind of one token equals one vote and people picking up a large amount of tokens and swaying votes. And like just generally people with the large amounts of tokens can just make the decisions. But with like the GSC, like even though the community can override like GSC members at any time, the GSC members in their vault essentially just have one vote each. So it's not like one GSC member could have a majority of all the votes and they could like outweigh the other GSC members. Like in the GSC vault, each GSC member is only given one vote. And that does help with silo resistance. Totally makes sense. So the various voting vaults that exist as currently designed will have equal voting power on governance decisions broadly. I'm sorry, I'm not sure I quite understand the question. So I guess the question is like, if you have three or four different voting vaults, one for the GSC and one for like Aave or compound depositors, is there a difference in the types of things that they can vote on? The GSC vault is the only exception in the system. It's totally separate and it votes on an entirely different architecture, which means that it has unique powers that are assigned to it on chain. Any on-chain things that are like necessarily more quick response or need to be managed by the GSC instead of like a formal protocol election, they get voted on the GSC as a totally separate track. So like I would actually think of the GSC as not a voting vault, even though from a technical implementation detail, it is a voting vault. It's just a voting vault in a totally different voting system. The primary ones like the compound and Aave voting vault and the blocking investing vaults, they don't have any implicit multipliers on them in the governance system. Anytime that they're asked how many votes a person has and they return a number, that number is treated equivalently by the core voting contract. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. So I guess, yeah, going back to my earlier point, like one of the major pain points of governance today, when I look at projects like Compound and MakerDAO, again, to go back to risk, you have really smart, sophisticated actors, whether they're core units or someone like Gauntlet in Compound's case, where they're making these recommendations, post it on how to adjust Compound's collateral factors, or let's say MakerDAO's stability fees, which are obviously hugely important parameters. But in many cases, as Compound especially, these recommendations are posted to governance and very few people end up voting on them because they don't understand how to evaluate the decisions and the numbers. And it's just not something that they can effectively follow. So it sounds like down the line, long-term voting vaults could be one way to think about solving that problem where similar to the GSC, like a specialized set of users, whether they're predetermined or elected based off of certain qualifications, can make these decisions and adjustments to the parameters with some sort of checks and balances and veto involved. But I think that's something that would be super useful. I think in general, that problem can be solved with two things, whether it's one or the other or both. And the first one is like with DAO teams getting onboarded and or whatever you want to call them. When they're onboarded and paid by the protocol, they should have the authority over their area of expertise to actually execute on their work. 
faster than someone, just a regular governance member. So I think in that case, like if it's a risk DAO team, they should have the authority to just go ahead and propose these. And if it is a risky or contentious parameter that they're changing, the community can come in and veto it. But in general, they should have that ability to just push things forward because they're paid and trusted by the community to do so unless they've acted maliciously. The second part is around just governance automation. I think in general, governance should be as automated as possible, especially when it comes to those like unique parameters, such as like debt ceiling, stability fees, and other collateralization parameters. And of course, governance needs to kind of have that as a manual process to start and get people up and running. But when the training wheels fall off, you can automate that so that it just involves like a certain threshold to be met. And then once that's met, you can just sign the transaction. Or so like maybe the DAO team could just be that person to sign that transaction. So I think that problem you mentioned, I mean, it could largely be solved by voting vault architecture, but it's also just a, a matter of giving the DAO teams that are onboarded to the DAO the actual authority to do their work to make the DAO run efficiently, but also just automating all those unique things that don't necessarily need to be manual processes that result in people to get voter fatigue and then voter apathy. Totally makes sense. So if I'm a founder of a new protocol or someone that is helping set up and create a DAO, what's the best way for me to tactically use voting vaults? And you mentioned it's all open source and, and you guys want other people to use it, but what's the most basic thing that they should implement? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is it's all open source. We strongly believe in open source and the repos are there. We have good documentation for them. And beyond that, we're like available in our public Discord to answer technical questions. Something we pride ourselves on as being really accessible to anyone who wants to use it. We're there to give you any support you need. The whole system is pre-built and we've done our best to make integrations as easy as possible. You may not even need custom code to be able to run it. You'll probably be able to fork it just like it's compound for most situations. And if you want something custom, it's highly easy to integrate with. And we have like dedicated support for you. Come and build and try some new stuff. We want to see a lot of experiments. Yes, please fork us. And I think in general, like we'll come out with a lot more content around like how to like create a voting vault and more technical documentation there. We do have all like the basic smart contract docs and overviews of the different types of voting vaults to date. But I think because this tool is so modular and customizable with any other DAO or protocol, it's basically our duty to help kind of spread and educate. So writing a lot more content and documentation is definitely going to be coming down the line. Awesome. Yeah, I had Arrow and Alex Kroger on a few months ago to chat about the Compound framework. And it seems like over the past 18 months, we've seen a lot of people either use it, fork it directly or fork it and make a few small changes. And I'm not just saying this because you guys are on this podcast, but it, it does seem to me that voting vaults do provide a pretty meaningful difference in the types of behaviors that DAOs can enable. And honestly, yeah, very interested in using it and applying it sort of myself. And I fully expect once people see these in action in many different ways, that there will be lots of attention and different just like experiments with voting vaults. Super pumped to see more of it. One other topic that you guys have written a lot about is optimistic funding and rewards. So Paul, if you could give a quick rundown of, of what that concept is. Yeah, so there are sort of two concepts in here, which are both mild plays on optimistic rollups, because I used to be an L2 researcher. 
I kind of see that architecture everywhere now in the way that most things on the blockchain are about the validation problem. And I think funding grants is actually one of those things that can be constructed in that way is right now, whenever you get a grant from a DAO, one of the major pain points is the management of the payout process. And I don't know if you've ever gotten a grant from a DAO, like you'll know this firsthand that a lot of the time it's like, you've got to like go find somebody to sign a multi-sig transaction that proves that you've actually done your job. A few months later, there's like a 90 day payout cycle. So the whole thing can be a really massive pain, especially because people who are very busy normally have to babysit the money that they're supposed to be giving you on some sort of like schedule. Our optimistic grants framework kind of flips this. It says that once we've decided that we think that you can do this work is that we've already pre-allocated it in a smart contract. And after a certain time period, the time period where the grant should be completed, you can just claim it directly from the smart contract. So there's no middle management, there's no interior stuff, there's no process really on chain. And what that means is that once you're given a grant from the council system, you can have a really strong guarantee that you're going to get paid and you're going to get paid on time. Now, of course, if you're a DAO grant funder, you're probably hearing this and you're like really scared. But what this means is that actually the on-chain transaction liability is mostly shifted onto you. So if you see a case of non-performance, you still have the absolute power to recall these funds. But instead of positioning yourself as actively having to approve every single time a payment is sent, you only need to actively intervene in the cases where the person is not actually performing or the team is not actually performing. And I think that's a really big change in model. It has like big benefits for people who work for DAOs and people who manage people who work for DAOs because I don't have to personally sign every single paycheck of someone who's on my team right now. And I don't have to bug Charles and Johnny to get on a multi-sig to sign every single payment for every bi-weekly check for our smart contract engineers for good reason. I've been on both the receiving and issuing end of grants before and sounds very useful. One of the hardest parts of running a grants program. So Larry, my co-founder at Reverie, previously ran compound grants, like and Carl from our team's working on DYDX now. Like one of the hardest parts is that there's so many grantees, hundreds after a few weeks, few months, and tracking their progress individually is impossible. And the current model of like, we'll pay you a portion, let's say 25% upfront and 75% on completion. It's a lot of overhead. It's hard to keep track of. It really is. So simplifying that process into like maybe checking in at the end of the quarter and three months after that, batching it that way. And if they're not performing, then recalling a portion of those funds, that would make things a lot simpler, super useful. And just to add to like the whole naming around optimistic rewards, namely it is because it is a play on the optimistic rollup, but it's also on the fact that it's optimistic for the grantee and that most grant models are that pessimistic view on people failing and that they're not going to reach this milestone. And that's how the payment method is reflected as well, assuming that they're going to fail. So with the optimistic like rewards model, as a grantee, you'll be able to have the confidence in the grant process and that the allocation of the funding from the DAO will come. 
it's unlike most existing grant structures today where like the grantee just feels left out to dry without receiving the grant or any meaningful communication at all from like the team or DAO after the grant has been proposed. So we really wanted to have a play on like the optimistic being literally, but also related to kind of the roll-ups as well. Yeah, the other component of this is that there's a grants flow, and then there's actually something that's useful for teams that want to do liquidity mining that's based on these same sort of philosophies. The way this works is that the governance system defines an off-chain program that it wants to run to assign rewards based on on on-chain data, like let's say adding LP to something. But currently the way that works is that everyone needs to register on-chain in some type of smart contract to collect these rewards. And you have to ship code every single time you want to change the way that they're allocated. You need on-chain votes. But we actually, we've like designed an architecture for rewards management where the governance as a whole will allocate a pool of funds and it'll select an off-chain program to run. And then that program is run by a party and verified on-chain optimistically. So that person will suggest a Merkle route every, say, like week. And then there's a weak dispute period where governance via the GSC or governance vote overall can actually dispute that route. And so if the system works properly, then because of this like fraud proof mechanism, you can kind of get a guarantee that all of the funds are allocated according to this off-chain deterministic program, which means that you can eliminate all of the on-chain activity to set up a rewards program. And this is, I think, a really big win because constantly shipping rewards logic changes is, I think, one of the biggest places that smart contracts keep getting pushed for large, mature projects. And that's where you see a lot of the vulnerabilities come in is just sheer volume of smart contract changes. Compound has an incredibly stellar record. And the one place that they have had any type of incident is in the code that they've been consistently changing, the rewards code. And so we, by using an optimistic model to remove these rewards off chain, one, it's much better for the user experience because there's no more staking. There's not an extra transaction. Every time you're, as you're LP'd, you sort of consistently get credited with new funds that are claimable after some duration. And the smart contract teams have a much lower threshold on the amount of code they need to secure. So you have sort of like a, UX win and a security win by leveraging governance to do sort of optimistic validation of the rewards distribution according to some type of formula. And in terms of optimistic rewards, it sounds like it's super important to have that initial formula and method of distribution decided. How should teams think about what if they do need some adjustment after the initial method? Like how would optimistic rewards affect that? It's actually probably easier than adjusting the on-chain rewards because what you can do is if you're writing a program that parses Ethereum data, you pick a block number where that program changes. And then whenever the person who calculates the rewards calculates them, they just change the program they're running at that specific block. And so actually whenever a new program is decided on by governance, the rollout is much smoother because you don't have to write any smart contracts for it. You only need to define that program into some type of code that parses Ethereum data off-chain, and then it can be run by all of the validators and the proposer. Got it. Okay. That 
actually makes a ton of sense. Interesting. So yeah, optimistic rewards, another interesting primitive that teams can use for any kind of ongoing emissions going forward, whether it's for liquidity or maybe for governance mining. The flexibility is really nice because you can sort of define any arbitrarily complex set of on-chain actions in a way that's not possible with purely smart contracts. So like you can say you have to provide it X amount of LP within this period and you have to have delegated and voted and then you get a boost. Encoding this into smart contracts is like very expensive and hard to do. But since you can just use all of the data about what's happening on chain, you can build sort of arbitrarily complicated programs with no impact to the user experience. Totally makes sense. So far in this podcast, we've covered the just core element governance design, the GSC model, voting vaults, optimistic funding and rewards. You guys have come up with all these interesting and pretty new like primitives and methods to improve governance broadly and make it more effective. So I guess like to take a step back and ask like, why put all this time and energy into governance? If you zoom out and take a look over like the next five years, I'm sure a lot of protocols will honestly probably just stick with direct democracy style, very vanilla type governance. What do you think will happen to protocols that can think a layer above and create more sophisticated and maybe more advanced governance structures compared to those that stick with very vanilla ones? I think that governance models in general should vary in the future, depending on the actual project it's governing. Things like Maker, Compound, or protocols that require a lot of parameter tweaks each week or each month, and a lot of things in the protocol that can need continuous improvement, like those should have a more simple governance system that allow people to vote quicker or delegate. And it's not a long process, but it does have like security measures. And then there's like projects like Uniswap or other protocols that require a little less governing, more so on the socioeconomic side with like treasury management and grants and those kind of things. Like those two governance models should be very different. And I mean, as the projects evolved, like the biggest thing I think with governance models is that they adapt. So building these systems to adapt as they go will ultimately help these projects evolve. One thing that I do think is notable is the way Compound and Maker are complementary of each other. So Maker was the first on-chain governance system. And I think that it's still extremely robust today. And I mean, look at MakerDAO now. It's grown incredibly so like ever since the launch of MCD in, in, in mid-2019. And the governance system hasn't changed much. It's very kind of fixed and can be tweaked and changed in a very hard way. So like if you do want to make a change to a contract maker, you have to migrate the whole system over and you have to migrate the governance token over. And that involves a lot of like burdensome stuff, but it works. They've made automated modules and all of that, but then compound comes and, and makes governance a lot more efficient with delegation as well. So it really becomes like a question of security versus efficiency. Of course, like things in maker governance take a lot longer to pass, but you can trust that the right security decisions are being made. With Compound, things can happen quicker, but the specificity of proposals isn't there. You can have two purposes of different things in one proposal. One can be very contentious, one can be no-brainer. And the no-brainer one kind of gets pushed forward and then a malicious thing comes through. So 
bad decisions can be snuck through that way. So it really is a trade-off between security and efficiency. So bringing that back to what I was saying earlier is that it does depend on the type of protocol you're governing. Snapshot and then DAO governing could make sense as opposed to snapshot, just multisig, or something like council protocol could make sense for things that have to deal with protocol governance, but also treasury and socioeconomic governance. That's the long-winded reply. Yeah, a little bit shorter reply to the same question. I think that actually a lot of projects might like something more complicated for their governance systems, but that they don't have the internal capacity to allocate to making it happen. Like an NFT project, it might make a lot of sense for them for their governance to be done with NFTs instead of with actual ERC-20 tokens. And I think as we see better and better DAO tooling, we're going to see more and more creativity because of that, because governance can fit projects in different ways. And so even though teams don't necessarily have as much energy as we have to allocate to it, I think we will see more creativity as like more tooling becomes available. And to touch on tooling a little bit, because that's something that, yeah, I feel like at ETH Denver came up in every single conversation, like DAO tooling. Are there any obvious things that you guys are looking for in terms of the DAO tooling side that would really make people's lives easier, whether it's like creating a DAO or operating one or scaling one? Yeah, I think 2022 is going to be a big year for DAO tooling. And there's a lot of projects emerging, just focusing purely on that. One of my favorite ones thus far is Commonwealth. And I say that because I've spent many years just posting on forums on discourse and interacting with that and being an admin there and managing all the roles and the support's really not there. And it also kind of gets into a broader topic where like if I'm participating in governance in many projects that use discourse, I have to have the discourse forums open. I have to have the governance dashboard open. I have to have the snapshot open. I have to have the proposal open. And that creates like five, six plus tabs for me to read through. And I'm already spending so much time just trying to like vote on this. I have to go and read everything here and open up all these tabs. It's burdensome. It's fragmented. So with Commonwealth, it actually allows people to have the proposal framework there, have the forum threads like talking about things to implement or explore. You can also do the off-chain and on-chain voting all in one place. And I think connecting like council protocol with something like Commonwealth will just make the governance experience that much easier for people and less burdensome because it's already just, like I said earlier, in general, people don't like voting. So making it easier from that front, I think other tools like Orca and the pods framework for creating more structures for sub teams is going to be really interesting. Definitely something to explore there as well. But yeah, I mean, payment coordinate is also amazing, like Paul mentioned earlier. So I think we're going to see a lot more things just working on the human side of DAOs as opposed to the technical side. I think based on just like the ethos and like technical pros of the industry, like we all think governance is a technical problem, but at the end of the day, it really is humans that need to interact. So building more tools that help people coordinate and make decisions and all of that is going to be something I'm going to look out for, definitely. Yeah, I guess, Charles, yeah, totally agreed. Like governance and DAOs generally, everyone can agree broadly that they're not operating as well as they could in a lot of ways. And impartially, that's by design to have a completely flat hierarchy. But the problems that are being solved are, I think technical solutions can help smoothen and facilitate that process, like better identity, better reputation, better ways of evaluating people, better payment structures. But yeah, at the end of the day, you can have the best governance or DAO like setup philosophy in the world. 
But if you don't have the right people with the right incentives doing the actual work, then none of it matters. Absolutely. Awesome. Guys, thanks a lot for taking the time. This was a really awesome episode. I think we touched on a bunch of major and super fascinating just governance building blocks that listeners will find super interesting. So thanks for taking the time and coming on. Yeah, this was awesome. I had a lot of fun. And I think that 2022 is going to be a huge year for governance. And I'm just really excited that we're all here talking about this. And it's actually a big topic at conferences such as Denver, and people are willing to start not just focusing on DeFi, but also on governance. So I think at the end of the day, the government you elect is the government you deserve. So if you see these projects kind of going sloppy with governance, it means that they're not ready for that. And I think you'll see the real serious protocols emerge on how they approach governance. Yeah. And I also think just to, I'm just going to stop, but just to add on to that, like a good barometer for evaluating successful governance is being able to attract and empower the right kinds of contributors. I think, again, over the next two, three years, we will see projects that are able to do that and attract long-term incentivized contributors succeed and survive over the ones that aren't able to transition from having a small core team and allow them to hand it off and work for the broader community. So I think, again, like governance is one of those things that the effects, it's not like a smart contract audit where if it's poorly designed, the effects can be immediately obvious and, and huge. In this case, poor governance, the effects can still be huge, but it take months, if not years to manifest. So I think that's part of the reason that it's not the first thing that comes to mind for like the most important parts of like a protocol design necessarily. But I think, yeah, long-term, there are huge second and third order effects. I think that's the beautiful thing about DAOs is that, I mean, in traditional Silicon Valley or just like Web2 tech, you see the only options for tech founders or tech like early contributors to be either like continue to run the company privately forever, they get acquired or they IPO. With DAOs, it essentially allows like the core team to hand it off to their most valuable users, the most active community participants, and a way to actually filter those people and have them govern in, in specific ways, whether it's through voting vaults or all these different other mechanics. It will be kind of something that evolves over time on actually having better selection and vetting, but we're just getting started, I think. Awesome. Well, Charles, Paul, thanks again for taking the time. And yeah, super pumped for Element's governance model and excited to see it go live and see it happen. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure.